This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Wednesday, the 1st of November. I'm Sabra Lane, coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. The family have detained Australian writer Young Hen Jun's pleading with the Prime Minister to do everything in his power to save their father's life when he visits China later this week. The family's written to Anthony Albanese about their father's plight, saying he might be dying. The democracy activist has been detained in a Chinese jail for nearly five years and is in poor health. Mr Albanese will be the first PM to visit China since 2016. Political reporter Dana Morse reports from Parliament House. He's been held in a Chinese jail for close to five years, living in confinement and rarely seeing the sun. Now Dr Yang Heijun's family fear time may be running out to see him released alive. They've made a rare public plea to Anthony Albanese to use his visit to secure Dr Young's release. This report shows a system that is jeopardising the health of an Australian citizen in the prime of his life, who may be dying. He wanted us to be brought up in, quote, the most beautiful country in the world, where the rule of law is strong and human rights are guaranteed. But now he's without human rights and his situation is critical. Dr Young became a democracy advocate and political dissident after he spent 14 years working as a spy for China's Ministry of State Security. While his case has received some public attention, his family has rarely spoken out. His wife, Zhao Liang Yuan, last spoke with the ABC in 2019. There is just no news at all. Also, I can't do anything to help him to proceed through a legal approach, so I am devastated. In a consular report from last week, officials noted Dr Young's already poor condition had declined further, saying he had lost weight and has had trouble standing. And in his letters to his family, Dr Young wrote he is almost physically destroyed. Professor Chung Fong Yi is a close friend and advocate for Dr Young. For this uh, almost four, five years, I have tried everything possible to get him out, but now uh, all fail. China did release Australian journalist Chung Lei last month after she spent three years in detention. Professor Fong Yi says Dr Young's case is more complicated. The bad news is that um, Yang Hongjin's situation is much more serious than Sang Lei. And he was detained almost two years longer than Sang Lei. Speaking this week, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says he will raise Dr Young's case with his Chinese counterpart. We have raised uh, concerns, uh, including at meetings I've had uh, in the past uh, with uh, President Xi. Uh, Australia will always raise uh, cases involving Australian citizens. Professor Fang Yi says Australia has an obligation to hold China accountable. As I argued before, it's a morally indefensible position to fully normalise relations with China when the CCP kept Yang Hongjin as a hostage. Friend and advocate Professor Chong Fong Yi ending Dana Morse's report. The Victorian government promised last year to introduce a compensation scheme for victims of historical abuse and neglect in institutional care. But it appears to have broken the promise to set up a redress program this year and consult with victim survivors to design it. Now, a number of people who were institutionalised as children, known as care leavers, are calling on the Victorian government to act. Richard William reports. 
For the first time in nearly 60 years, Terry Hellman is back at the red brick orphanage he used to call home. It's a tough moment for the care leaver who was taken away from his parents when he was just two months old. Not happy memories. You were a lot of kids here, over 100 kids, but you always felt like you are on your own. They weren't very loving people, the nuns. Terry spent 16 years in the care of the state. He was physically and sexually abused by those who were supposed to be caring for him, which has impacted his life. I didn't trust people, and uh, I'll admit I drank a lot. And he's seen other care leavers struggle too. I think they did, they crushed their spirits, yeah. I don't, I don't hear of too many that went on and did better things, or greater things. Mr Hellman is one of 90,000 Victorians put into state care before 1990. Last year, Premier Daniel Andrews promised care leavers who suffered non-sexual abuse that they would have a redress scheme by 2024. It was a moment of hope for Terry Hellman. Well, it's just justice, you know, for what you went through and just respect and just so they admit they did the wrong thing by us. But more than 12 months on, the government is yet to deliver. Standing on the steps of Victoria's Parliament House, Leonie Sheedy says there's no time to wait. She's from Care Leavers Australasia Networks, known as CLAN, which supports people who grew up in state care. Three of our members have died in July. The youngest was 62. The redress was promised after attempts by the state to have non-sexual abuse included in the National Redress Scheme failed. The promise included financial payments, personal acknowledgements and apologies and access to support services. It was also to be co-designed by peak groups such as CLAN. But Leonie Sheedy says special hardship payments that were promised have not been made and CLAN has not been contacted. It's really a betrayal of Victorian care leavers. You know, we were invited to come to Parliament House over 12 months ago when Dan Andrews made that very welcome announcement and yet silence for the next 13 months nearly. She has a message for new Victorian Premier Jacinta Allen. I would like her to make a public um, an apology to Victorian care leavers and their families for the psychological damage done to care leavers. The redress must be progressed this year, you know, otherwise it's just another broken promise and it's another betrayal to Victorian care leavers. That's Leonie Shetty from Care Leavers Australasia Networks ending Richard Williams' report. And in a statement, the Victorian government says it's met with CLAN to understand how best to support care leavers. It says the government is co-designing a redress scheme with past care leavers and the Premier will make a formal apology to survivors of all forms of abuse in institutional settings. And if you have experienced childhood trauma or abuse, you can call the Blue Knot Helpline on 1300 657 380. The small town of Tara on the New South Wales-Queensland border has been saved from bushfires, but more than 1,000 firefighters are still battling blazes across the state's southeast. And there are warnings of more extreme heat and isolated storms. Nicole Johnston reports. The small town of Tara has been hit hard by the fires that have swept through Queensland's Western Downs. More than 40 homes have been lost. Sophie Bargall works at the local pub. We're full every night with evacuees. There is an evacuation centre set up in Dolby where residents are going. But we've also got residents that can't get to places like Dolby. So they're staying in town at the local lagoon, camping in their cars until they get told that it is safe to return home. I've been talking to residents who have been evacuated from out there and they're just so scared, they're worried, they're devastated with what's happening and... The fear of the unknown is really consuming. Superintendent Wayne Waltersbowl is from the state's Fire and Rescue Service. He's near Tara. 
He says the fire is contained and the focus is on getting almost 50 people who fled from their homes back in their houses. A lot of the area now in that 24,000 hectares is not burning anymore, it's out and we're doing a lot of uh, a lot of prep work to allow people to return to their properties. So um, Ergon finished their task uh, early this week. Uh, we're driving down every road uh, in a car with a fire officer, a police officer and a council rep um, to triage the area to make sure it's safe for people to return. Mr Watersball says the emergency crews are shifting their attention to the Southern Downs region, near the New South Wales border. There's three fairly large uh, fires down that way um, today. They, they were contained last night. The, the wind was quite um, ferocious down the yesterday afternoon and that fire spread rapidly around that little town of Wollongar and another fire at Dalveen that's, uh, that's going to cause some problems. It's not contained today. And I think there's another fire up on the east of the range at Swanfells as well. So we're just coming into, I suppose, the worst part of our fire season as we get into the the more summer months and that really starts to heat up. But we're in a dangerous season this year. Um, ignition is really simple. Um, small sparks can can really rapidly evolve into major fires and even our crews were having trouble getting little spot fires out. The small Queensland town of Wollongara has also been under threat. People were trapped in their homes and told not to leave as driving could be deadly. In the end, the town was saved with the help of aerial water bombing. Storms are forecast to hit the area in the next few days with fears lightning strikes could start new fires. Dozens of houses have been lost in the state's southeast over the last week and firefighters are arriving from Victoria and New Zealand to provide backup. Queensland's crews face another tough day as temperatures soar. Nicole Johnston and Rachel Hayter with that report. From today, the federal government's tripling the bulk billing incentive for GPs when they treat children under 16, pensioners and other Commonwealth concession card holders. The measure was a major part of the federal government's May budget. Bulk billing is when a doctor bills Medicare directly for their patient's medical service, leaving those patients with no out-of-pocket costs. The incentive is an extra payment doctors receive on top of the Medicare rebate every time they bulk bill an eligible patient instead of charging them those out-of-pocket fees. Mark Butler is the Federal Health Minister. Minister, will the tripling of the bulk billing incentive make it easier for these targeted groups to see a doctor? We're very confident it will. This is what doctors' groups had called for for a long period of time, and when we delivered it in our May budget, they called it a game-changer. Already we're hearing practices changing their shift from bulk billing, which really they'd been forced to after a decade of cuts and neglect in the the latest global cost of living shock, but they've said they'll be returning to bulk billing or many of them who are considering a change would stick with bulk billing for those more than 11 million Australians. And that's about 60% or more of the throughput of the average general practice. So it's a huge boost in confidence and funding to a sector that I think is probably in its most parlous state it's been in in the 40-year history of Medicare. The Australian Institute of Health and Welfare earlier this year reported a big drop in GP services, saying it could be related to a sharp rise in out-of-pocket costs. Is the tripling of the incentive the only measure you've got planned to help families with these costs? 
No, this is part of $6 billion almost in new initiatives taking effect from today, as well as the tripling of the bulk billing incentive. We're delivering the biggest increase this year across the board to Medicare rebates since Paul Keating was Prime Minister more than 30 years ago. A bigger increase just this year than the former government managed in seven entire years. So we're doing a range of things to boost the viability of general practice, to make it easier for patients to see a doctor, particularly free of charge, and also to introduce a range of reforms that we negotiated with the sector that reflect the fact that the patient profile is not what it was in the 1980s when the Medicare system was first designed. So a mix of reform, delivering better quality care to patients with an injection of funding that's long overdue to this sector. Tasmania is like many parts of regional Australia and many outer fringe city suburbs. Doctors can't be found or their practices have shut, making quality care hard to find. The government currently has a scope of practice review underway. What change do you hope this will bring to deliver health care to people who can't easily get it right now? Well, you're right to say that right across Australia, we've got a real problem with the supply of our workforce. This is a global issue that was really aggravated by the pandemic, a shortage of supply of workers, but an increase in demand for healthcare. We're getting older, there's more chronic disease, there's legacies of COVID. So at a time of constrained supply and increasing demand, I've said many times, it doesn't make sense not to have every single one of our health workers operating to what they describe as the top of their scope of practice, which is utilising all of their skills, all of their training and all of their experience. And that's what I want to see for our nurses, nurse practitioners, pharmacists, allied health workers and general practitioners as well. There's been this glass ceiling, particularly on nurses, uh, that has not allowed them to utilise all of their skills and training that I want to see removed. I want to see their potential unleashed. And that's what this review is all about. That scope of practice review has already received nearly 700 public submissions. An interim report's due next month and all the state and territory governments are on board. How confident are you that the various health professions will agree on how health is delivered, that it actually needs to change in favour of patients and not protecting the professional turf of various groups? You're right to say that uh, in the past or, or, you know, suggest that in the past this has been an area where there's been lots of turf wars, lots of sharp elbows. But when we went through the strengthening Medicare uh, process over the course of last year, I detected a real sense of goodwill between the different professions. Obviously, the devil will be in the detail. We want to work sensibly with all of the professions to make sure we get this right. But there really is a recognition that we need to utilise everyone's skills to the fullest if we're going to deal with this problem of not enough supply to meet the demand for good quality health care in the system. We heard on AM yesterday that practitioner nurses could deliver a lot of services in towns where doctors just don't practice anymore, but they're not properly compensated for that. Would you like to see that change? Well, again, in the budget uh, in May, we announced that we'd increase the Medicare rebates for nurse practitioners by a full 30% next year. We've also committed to removing uh, the requirements for them to work essentially under the supervision of a general practitioner, what they call collaborative arrangements. This will allow nurse practitioners to work more independently. I mean, these are very highly qualified nurses. In addition to doing their registered nurse qualifications, they then go on to do master's qualifications. 
Uh, and I was shocked when we came back to government to discover there was only 2,000 nurse practitioners in Australia, which was the same number there was when we left government 10 years ago. So there just hasn't been the investment in this really important workforce that has so much potential, particularly in regions, but also in a number of sectors like mental health, palliative care, aged care and primary care here in the cities as well. So we want to invest in growing that workforce, but also reward them better for the work they do with that 30% increase to the rebate and make them and allow them to operate more independently from general practitioners or doctors than they currently can. Might it be possible for nurse practitioners to connect with specialist doctors with a patient without the need for additional referrals, which are sometimes just form-filling exercises, just to have things done face-to-face? Well, I think that's exactly the sort of thing that this scope of practice review will be looking at. And certainly that's one of the issues that's commonly raised with me by the College of Nurse Practitioners. That is the ability of practitioners to do their own referrals for tests, uh, for diagnostic tests or pathology uh, referrals to specialists. And that's something that Mark Cormack, a very highly qualified person in this area, is going to be working through with the professions over the coming months. Minister, thanks for talking to AM this morning. Thanks, Barbara. Mark Butler is the Federal Health Minister. Israel's launched airstrikes on the Jabalia refugee camp near Gaza City, destroying several buildings and apparently killing a major Hamas leader. And Iran-backed rebels in Yemen claim to have launched missile attacks targeting Israel in another sign of the potential of this conflict to expand. David Sparks has more. Rescuers search for survivors in the rubble at the refugee camp in northern Gaza. This cameraman was there. An entire block was wiped out. Search operations are ongoing for injured, for martyrs. Palestinian health authorities say at least 50 Palestinians were killed in the densely crowded camp. This doctor says the hospital was overwhelmed. We've received a large number of injured after the major explosion that shook the entire refugee camp. Hundreds of injuries, hundreds of martyrs. They were just in their homes. They were targeted while they were in their homes. Children, all martyrs, children, women, elderly. We've no idea what to do. There are injured everywhere. All the volunteers went down there hand in hand just to help people. Israel's military has confirmed that its jets carried out the attack on the refugee camp. Israel Defence Force spokesman Daniel Hagari says the strike killed a senior Hamas commander and caused the collapse of Hamas's underground infrastructure. We will enable the people of Gaza to continue moving towards the south and evacuate them. We will continue acting against any terrorist throughout Gaza. The United Nations and other aid groups say Gaza's civilians are in a public health catastrophe, with hospitals struggling to treat casualties as electricity supplies come in and out. Meanwhile, fears that Israel could face threats from other parts of the region are growing. Yemen's Houthi rebels, who are backed by Iran, have for the first time claimed to have launched missile and drone attacks targeting Israel. Israel says it shot down the attacks. Israel Defence Force spokesman Daniel Hagari again. They were intercepted outside the actual territory of Israel. There are various factors, all proxies of Iran, including the Houthis, the Houthis from Yemen. But we are focused on the war in Gaza, but we will defend wherever it is necessary. 
Hamas says more than 8,000 people have been killed in Gaza since this latest conflict broke out three weeks ago. 1,400 Israelis were killed in the Hamas attacks on October 7th. David Sparks reporting. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Egypt sits along the south of the Gaza Strip, but since the Israel-Hamas war began, it has kept its border shut. It means civilians can't leave the territory as Israeli ground troops move in. Today we speak to an aid worker in the region and a former Palestinian peace negotiator on the human cost of the war. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.